Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cheryl. That was lovely. I'm very happy to be here. I'm going to try to be efficient because I have a lot that I want to talk about. This is one lecture, and I'm doing a second lecture, back-to-back, shorter, so we can get everything done. Um, I will we'll just mention before I get into, uh, into our quarry for tonight, <clears throat> I'm working on a different book, a, non, a non-UFO-related book which is a history of false flag operations. And uh, <clears throat> just as I start talking, <clears throat> choking on something here, it's a conspiracy. <clears throat> Pretty sure it's a conspiracy. So, yes, I'm doing a history of false flags, which uh, if you don't know what a false flag is, I'm sure many of you do, but some may not. So it would be when a government or an intelligence agency does something really horrible, like blow up buildings and kill people, and then blame it on another group say, terrorists. There's a lot of that going on in the world today, in my opinion, and I'm doing a, uh, an analytical history of that phenomenon. And I guess I will just mention uh, very quickly, if you've ever watched, uh, if anyone's watched Gaia TV over in the U.S., uh, I've just uh, agreed, I'll, I'll be hosting, I'm writing and hosting um, a long series on uh, false flags and covert operations. In fact, when I get back to the States, uh, we'll probably be shooting that. Uh, assuming that I finish writing all the episodes out. So uh, that's keeping me busy. But right now I'm here in Australia. This is my first time in this country. And without joking, I will say that after two hours of being in this country last week, I thought, maybe I want to live here. (laughs) My country's a little crazy, in case you haven't noticed. We have some things going on. In fact, I may actually get to discuss some of that in in my second lecture. I did just write an article yesterday uh, dealing with the U.S. presidential election and um, any, if any, implications for disclosure and any other things that may be of interest. So the Trump factor, welcome to Trump land, we're, we're in it. Uh, I'll come back to that. So that'll be a political lecture. That's my second one here. The, this one, this one's a little more interesting, a little more philosophical. Um, to some of you, this might seem a little entry level, but I assure you it's actually not. And if you don't know a whole lot about UFOs, I think this will be a very interesting eye-opener. But even if you do, I, I like to explore things. I'm, my professional training is as a historian, but I like philosophy. I've studied a lot of philosophy in my life. And this is a somewhat of a philosophical treatment of what is it that we're dealing with? What are we dealing with when we talk about UFOs? So let me get started. Uh, 
go back about 100 years, and our world was uh, well, a very different place. We were just starting to do this, flight, getting ourselves into the air. Um, and it was an era in which science was the dominant ideology, absolutely a belief in scientific progress, and a very materialistic version of scientific progress. That is, we've figured out the world mechanically, we've got all, everything worked out, and we're just going to put things together, and we're going to go from one uh, frontier to another. This frontier was the sky. The next one, obviously, would be space. And um, I, would, I would suggest that human civilization has been predisposed to thinking about beings from outer space. Once we started taking to the air, uh, my attitude is that with the mentality of, uh, of Western civilization 100 years ago, uh, we absolutely were. And when you start looking at some of the uh, literature back at that time, H.G. Wells famously writing War of the Worlds, that is, uh, beings from Mars, looking at uh, our planet with evil intent. Um, and then there are other, other stories. Buck Rogers, uh, I, I bought a collection in a used bookstore in New York City. The entire Buck Rogers uh, comics from 1929 to the 1960s. Really interesting. And uh, that's basically, before there was Star Trek, there was Buck Rogers, Cowboys in Space. Um, the Shaver Mysteries were another series of, of writings in the early 20th century. All of these describe, um, to one extent or another, our interaction with other beings from another place. And so, by the time this whole business started, Flying Saucers, uh, our mentality was in a certain state of mind. We were, as I say, predisposed for those people who believe that these flying saucers were real, and there were quite a few, uh, the dominant explanation was pretty much along this idea. This is an early book by the American writer Donald E. Kehoe. The, the cover shows it all. That's a great book, by the way. Um, the flying saucers are real from 1950. So when people started encountering these early flying saucers and the reports of them, probably the dominant attitude among those who believe that it was legitimate was that we were very possibly dealing with spaceships from another planet. And back in those days, they weren't thinking another galaxy or another star system. They were thinking Mars. They were thinking Venus in the context of 1950. And they were also thinking, wow, they must have just arrived because we never heard of this before. Well, this was before people started really investigating the more distant past. So the world of 1950, 51, 52, this was absolutely a very, very common conception of what we were dealing with. And the idea is that they had just arrived, and maybe what were their intentions? Were they here to surveil us in preparation for something more dramatic? Were they going to land on the White House lawn like in the day the Earth stood still? All of these ideas were very common at that time. What were they going to do? A lot of the, uh, the thinking of, I think, in my opinion, of the writers of the early 50s, they were infested with a lot of, a lot of guilt over what, over what had happened uh, when the European settlers came into North America and essentially enslaved mass swaths of people and wiped out the rest. And I really think, I honestly believe that this was in the back of the minds of, of, certain, of Americans anyway who were thinking, uh, are they here to rub us out? Um, there were a lot of varieties of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, or ETH. Uh, I don't. I came up with these names myself because I don't really know if anyone came up with them. 
I call one the Buck Rogers variant, and that's sort of straightforward. Explorers from another planet are here, like in the day the Earth stood still. Um, they come to Earth, and they want to make friends, they want to explore, whatever. And then you have the ancient astronaut variation. Even before Eric Von Daniken in the 60s, this theory was already becoming uh, spreading. There were studies of UFOs in the Bible back even in the 1950s, and so on. And the idea is, uh, the more we look into the ancient past, and people started uh, talking about, like, uh, realizing that there's this fellow named Charles Fort, who had been doing research and finding some really early anomalous sightings. And we started to realize, no, this is actually not starting in 1947. This goes back. How far back? And so this idea that we've been with them all along very much became uh, a prominent idea. And then I guess what I would call the Space Brother variant, which is uh, could be related to both of the other two, but essentially... Uh, people like George Adamski and so many other contactees talking about entities who are here to help us. And this idea, of course, is very current to this day. Um, frequently, we'll have people who will talk about telepathic downloads. Same basic idea, in my view. Different types of the ETH. Well, I, I will um, point out that the United States military in the late 1940s also very strongly considered the extraterrestrial hypothesis. This is an image from a sighting from 1948. It was a very well-known sighting by the U.S. military at that time. A rocket-like craft, which is in the foreground there, you can see it, uh, zoomed in front of a commercial airliner, nearly colliding with it. The two pilots were very experienced. They gave a very clear description of it. There, it, there was nothing that was supposed to be doing that. Now, uh, who knows what that object was that they saw. The sighting seemed to be a very good one. But what definitely did happen is that through the classified world of the United States Air Force, there was already a group, there were several groups, I believe, but there was one that we absolutely know for sure that was studying this phenomenon. And they concluded, along with a number of other sighting reports, that this phenomenon was interplanetary. That was their phrase. That was called the estimate of the situation. And uh, it landed on the desk of the Air Force, U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff, General Hoyt Vandenberg. And um, by the way, I've uh, that that estimate of the situation has never been found. It has been confirmed by a number of sources, never been found. However, uh, there is good reason to believe that a copy either has been found or is about to be found. I'm in touch with some researchers. One is in Australia. Two are in the states who are hot on the trail of this, and I do think that they may be able to get it. But uh, Vandenberg did not like the conclusion, and he broke up the group and dispersed them, scattered them to the winds. But the fact is, throughout the history of the Air Force and the U.S. intelligence community, we know this. There have always been strong factions that have looked at the UFO phenomenon and concluded that we are probably dealing with an extraterrestrial phenomenon. Beyond all of those reasons to think about UFOs being ET, there are other, what I would call, unofficial leaks. There's tons of those. Uh, I personally have spoken to many individuals in the classified world, and a lot of other researchers have done the same. And there's a very consistent story that comes out. And the consistent story is that there are bodies that have been acquired uh, along with exotic technology that does not come from our civilization. I have spoken to such scientists 
very, very well-connected scientists myself. Um, I'm waiting for the day when I can out one of them. He's quite well-known. Uh, but, of course, I'm not the only researcher who's come across this. A lot of researchers have delved into the lab labyrinth of secrecy, and you find such scientists and insiders who will talk about alien bodies. There is the Roswell story. There are many stories of crash retrievals. It's not just Roswell. Indeed, there's one from six years earlier in the U.S. at uh, Cape Girardeau in the state of Missouri, right in the middle of the United States. Uh, I think this is a very good case, a very good case, and there are quite a few others. And then we have some very contentious issues, the so-called majestic documents. These were leaked multiple times. There's majestic documents from the 1980s and then a series of them in the 1990s. If you print them all off, it's about this thick. There's a lot of them. I went through the trouble many years ago to read them. It's an incredible read. I will say this, if they're fake, then um, we're not talking one guy cranking them out in his basement. This is a team of very brilliant PhDs who know what they're doing and create those documents for a reason. Would that reason be to throw people like me off the track? If so, I'm very flattered. I don't really think that's the case, but um, who knows? But I guess what I'm saying here is that there are other sources in addition to our official documents and our official history that do point to an, to an extraterrestrial hypothesis as the explanation for UFOs. So if all of that's the case, then what's the big deal? Why are we even, why am I here talking about other alternative theories? Well, there's a real reason because if you go back to the 50s when people were talking about this as it was a brand new phenomenon. They just arrived, they heard a surveil, maybe they're going to make an announcement. Well, there was no invasion. There was no announcement. There's just a whole lot of nothing. It just kept going. And on top of that, it became very clear that this is a very strange subject. It doesn't really behave the way you would think if it was men and women and maybe robots from another planet in metal spaceships. There's something else going on with this, and if you study this in any detail, you know exactly what I mean. It's elusive. It doesn't, it doesn't easily resolve itself to a simple line of questioning. And regarding the leaks, things like Roswell and the majestic documents, that, well, that's easy. There's lots of skeptics out there just denying that they're legitimate anyway. So when you really think about it, you wonder, well, are we really dealing with an extraterrestrial hypothesis? So there are some alternate explain, explanations for UFOs. I'm going to run by a few of them for you, starting with the most skeptical to the most, let's say, interesting. So the most skeptical is the skeptical hypothesis. And uh, you can kind of figure this one out. It's all a big mistake, guys. You're wasting your time. Hoaxes, hallucinations. Uh, even if there is life out there, they would say, it's impossible for them to get here. And we know this because we don't know how to get to the stars, so no one else could ever possibly figure it out. I mean, that's almost what they're saying. Uh, on the top left is Donald Menzel of Harvard University. Next to him was Philip J. Class. Each in their turn were the, the leading debunkers of UFOs. Uh, Carl Sagan on the bottom left, very famous in his day, kind of a populist uh, science astronomer. And then on the bottom right, probably the successor to Carl Sagan, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, all of these are professional astronomers except Class on the top left who was just a spook, in my opinion. Uh, on the top left, uh, Menzel, very interesting thing. He was not just an astronomer at Harvard University, smacking down all the UFO reporters of the day. He was secretly working for the NSA. No one knew this at the time, not even his wife. It was discovered after he died by UFO researcher Stanton Friedman. I say this because I think it's significant. 
that uh, the leading skeptic of the 1950s and 60s was a covert agent and a top-level cryptographer for the National Security Agency. What we find, and this is not simply being paranoid conspiracy theory, this is fact, the UFO field has been infiltrated, and I think continues to be infiltrated by the intelligence community because it is a matter of national security. I'll get into all of those reasons a little later in this evening. So that's a skeptical hypothesis. It's essentially, you're wasting your time, guys. Uh, one step removed from that, we might call the psychosocial hypothesis. And I think this is very interesting. You see these images I have here. Basically, a psychosocial hypothesis would suggest this phenomenon responds, it responds to our mind. So there's, they're not saying that there's, there are extraterrestrials, but they would be saying there's something going on. It is strange. We don't really know what it is. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. But we do feel, we do sense that this phenomenon responds to our predispositions, our thoughts, uh, our cultural expectations, and that we perceive this strange reality through the lens, through the filter of our cultural expectations. And so on the top image, uh, that's a, a, a 16th century German woodcut from the city of Nuremberg, depicting some, we don't know what happened, something bizarre was recorded or seen by people there, and they, that's how they described it. Doesn't really look like flying saucers, but it looks like something odd. Just below that is a drawing from uh, the 18th century over the city of London, 1760-something, I believe. Uh, this appeared in a very academic journal at the time, 250 years ago, called Philosophical Transactions. And the witness was a very, uh, very articulate man. You can read this. And he's describing what seemed like a silent rocket. It's seven, the 1760s go horizontally, silently over his head. And he watched it for a number of minutes, got a very good look at it, and wrote about it. I don't know what that thing is either. But now rockets, or uh, types of rockets and explosives did exist at that time. But what this man saw was clearly a lot more advanced. And then just below that, we're now into the late 19th century, the infamous or famous airships in the western United States. There were balloons of that era, but, but there were no navigable dirigibles, you know, airships. Uh, back in 1896, when these were being seen, um, you couldn't fly them more than a couple of miles without crashing and killing yourself. They were really impossible to steer. It wasn't until 1903 that the Germans invented the Zeppelin that could actually go 
and be navigated and so forth. So what were people seeing in the 1890s in the U.S.? I mean, there were a lot of spurious reports of the airships. They're not all legitimate, but some of them might be legitimate. There were quite a few of them, and we really don't have an explanation for them to this day. Just below that is your classic flying saucer. I believe that one's from 1952 from New Jersey. Uh, I think that's a legitimate picture as far as I've uh, learned. I don't think that's been debunked. And then at the bottom, one of the typical kinds of plasma types of things that people will see there's all kinds of bizarre sightings. I, I mean, there are still disc-shaped things that are being recorded today. There's black triangles. and There's a lot of other varieties. But I think what a psychosocial hypothesis would point out is this phenomenon does, uh, to some extent, respond to our cultural expectations. So what's going on there? You know, is it that our mind uh, is, to some extent, creating this phenomenon, manifesting it, however you want to look at it? I don't know if I have the answer to that, but this is, a, I think, a valid way to look at the phenomenon because I do, I do think it is true that this is a phenomenon that does seem, uh, or at least it, we interpret it through our own filter. So even if it's extraterrestrial, there probably is some serious validity to this way of looking at it. And then we get a little more interesting. We'll talk about interdimensional beings for a little while here. Um, I think you can probably get this. Many people talk about it. Uh, the idea being that this phenomenon isn't really from another planet. They're from another dimension of reality. Understanding another dimension of reality, I've never truly grasped it, but I'm going to try to explain it in a few minutes. Uh, but the idea is that these are not aliens from another planet. They're entities from another dimension of reality. Uh, the writer Jacques Vallée years ago suggested maybe they're conducting their own psychological operation on us. Uh, kind of like their own intelligence operation on us, leading us along, poking us, and getting us to uh, sort of move along in our own development as a society. That was his theory. Uh, one of the reasons that people thought about this as not extraterrestrial is just the quantity of sightings every year. There's thousands every year. I mean, this is, you really have to ask yourself. Like in North America alone, right now, this year, there's probably going to be another 15,000 reported sightings just from two websites. The MUFON, that is the Mutual UFO Network Database, and the National UFO Reporting Center. These are both major websites in the States and in Canada where you could report a sighting. And every year they collect about 15,000 sightings. Now, this doesn't mean that they're all alien craft. Clearly, I don't think that. But the fact is that there's a lot of sightings. Um, that are going on around the world every year. And so the question is, are they all from another planet you know, surveilling us or doing whatever they do? And so some people have a hard time with that idea. Uh, for people like John Keel and Jacques Vallée and a lot of folks today, this phenomenon seems a little too strange for it to be an extraterrestrial entities appearing, disappearing, objects morphing in the sky, you know, if you've studied this long enough, you've, you've heard this. The idea that uh, maybe these encounters with alien beings is said it related to ancient stories of encounters with fairies. John Keel coined the phrase ultra-terrestrials because he just thought, this is a little too odd. Are they really aliens? You know, and then going into, um, you know, a lot of contemporary uh, analysis and investigation of this, you talk to a lot of people who have had 
what either might be an abduction or some other kind of experience with these other beings. And there's a lot of emphasis, a lot of, uh, it's obvious that there's mind-to-mind communication going on. Sometimes it's not always with an obvious physical entity. It's hard to prove this. You know, scientists would have a very difficult time with this because it would be, as they might say, not falsifiable. You can't prove or disprove it. But there's a lot of these stories out there, and you have to wonder, is there something going on? Are people having communications with non-physical entities? If so, what's that all about? Back in 1950, there was a declassified document, Canadian, describing the the U.S. side of things and uh, describing how the U.S. intelligence community already recognized back in 1950, that there was a, a, a significant mental phenomena to the flying saucer phenomenon. Uh, this was found by my colleague Grant Cameron, and it was a really astute insight. What he pointed out is that long before there were contactees talking about mental connections to these flying saucers, the U.S. military apparently was onto it. They already knew that in 1950 that there is significance to the mental phenomena to these so-called flying saucers. So something was going on here. Another thing, just making me think about interdimensionality, though, is um, this is all anecdotal, but that comes to me many, too many times. I can't ignore it. Friends, colleagues, associates, or just random people coming up to me saying the following thing. I started meditating on a regular basis two, three years ago, and boom, I had an fill-in-the-blank for their experience. Out-of-body experience, contact with an extraterrestrial, you name it. Is there anyone in this room who's had something like that happen through meditation? A lot of hands going up. So there's something significant. What is that something? Is it that they're dealing with another, we're dealing with another dimension of reality? I have a thought about this. Uh... I have my little name for it. I call it my fish pond theory. Someone told me, no, no, Michio Kaku came up with something like that. To which I say, no, he stole it from me. This is my theory. And what I would say is, I think of us as like fish in a pond. So, um, you know, when a diver goes into the water, like this guy here talking to the fish, he sees the fish, he can enter their reality and then leave their reality. They're, you know, maybe vaguely aware that there's someone there. Uh, but the fish don't, don't know about life on land. They don't know about the sky. They don't know about the stars, the moon. They're fish. They live in their pond. They don't even realize that they're float, you know, swimming in water, really. So we're fish. We have a pond. Our pond, in my opinion, is called our space-time reality. It's how we organize our reality. It's how we perceive things. I mean, think of it this way. Our common sense tells us space just goes like this, just keeps going, and time just goes like a river. However, we we now know for sure, talk to any physicist, and they will tell you space and time are a fabric. They're locked in together. It doesn't really make common sense to us, but it's true. Talk to a physicist about the Big Bang. When I was a kid growing up, I thought the Big Bang was some big explosion in space. No. The Big Bang was the creation of space and the creation of time. So a physicist would tell you there was no time before the Big Bang. That's not proper. And there was no space for the universe to fit into either. To which we go, huh? How does that make sense? And it it doesn't make sense to us, but yet this is how it is. 
So what this tells me is that space and time are finite in some way. And that um, maybe they're finite to us. But is there something that is beyond this? I had an insight many, many years ago. This is silly, but it's true. I, um, I've talked about this once in a while. Happened to me when I was 20 years old. I was feeding my dog. And um, at that time, I was a very like militant atheist. I went through that whole period. Anyway, I'm feeding my dog, opening up a can of dog food, and uh, my dog's watching me, of course. He knows exactly what I'm about to do. He's smart. He's a dog. He knows, like, I'm going to get fed. And I was observing him as he was eating, and I thought, he's very intelligent. He knows me. He knew that I was about to feed him. But he did not know that we have factories that make dog food and put them in cans. And I thought, well, gee, Richard, you're so smart. So your dog's at this level. You're at this level. What's at that level? What's at this level? So there's always something beyond us. And um, what I would speculate regarding this dimension theory is simply that there are beings who are at that level. And um, they can enter our reality as they wish. I can't prove it. I don't know if we'll ever be able to prove such a thing. But I wonder, and it makes sense to me, that they can enter and leave our reality. And this is maybe, uh, to a limited extent, what we mean by dimensions. Let me leave dimensions alone for the moment. There are still other ways of looking at this subject. This is another one I had to come up with a name for. There, I don't know what anyone else is calling it. To me, it's the parallel development hypothesis. And you can kind of figure this one out, too. So not extraterrestrials, but humans, but very, you know, maybe another species, but earthbound, and they've been here all along. They made uh, like an ancient breakaway civilization, perhaps, you know, an ancient esoteric group that uh, made a significant breakthrough, discovered something, did not want to share with the rest of the barbaric humans, and uh, have had their own esoteric knowledge. I finally, about three, four years ago, finally, finally, finally read the great uh, book by Manly P. Hall called The Secret Teachings of the Ages. I'm sure there are people here who may have heard of it. Manley Hall was a Canadian who moved to L.A. about a, a century ago and was kind of a genius and wrote a book that I still to this day can't understand how it was possible he wrote back in the 1920s. It's a big fat book and it's about the esoteric traditions of really the major civilizations of human history from ancient Egypt to Sumer and he spent a lot of time on ancient Christianity and Judaism and what he called the Eleusinian mystery tradition and what he what he it's well worth your reading. Uh, what he concluded is that there have always been secret societies, esoteric societies, with special knowledge for the initiates. And as he <clears throat> saw it, their big goal was to achieve immortality of the soul. And that, that could be it. Maybe there's something else as well. But the point is, he argued very persuasively, in my opinion, that there has always been an esoteric elite with special knowledge. I think that's interesting, and maybe that's related to some of the other ancient mysteries that we uh, have talked about, and, and maybe some might suggest that that is the true answer to the entire UFO phenomenon. You've got the time travel hypothesis. This is an image, uh, it's an artistic rendering of the Rendlesham Forest case, and I use that image because uh, one of the participants in that, this is from 1980 in the UK, uh, was a U.S. airman who is convinced to this day that we were dealing with time travel in that event. Maybe. Uh, there's some interesting things about that case. I don't pretend that I know the answer. 
but this is a theory that has come up many times. Um, I, I admit that I have a hard time understanding time travel. For me, when I look at time, um, I have my own little personal definition of a moment. And to me, a moment is the position of every single thing that exists in the universe because everything's moving. So at any given moment, things are in a certain position, never to be repeated. That's how I see it. That's how I see moments. If that's the case, I don't see how you'd go back in time. For me to go back in time 20 years to Earth, I feel like I have to rewind the clock of the whole universe and move all the planets into the proper position. I don't understand that. Now, that's because my brain is still kind of limited. I'm still thinking like a human being, so maybe there's another way to do it. Another theory, let's call it the PSYOP and secret tech hypothesis. Again, this is fairly self-explanatory. The Nazi UFOs, the black triangles that are being built almost certainly by Boeing right now. Uh, I did have a long conversation uh, about a year and a half ago with a retired Boeing engineer who gave me a great amount of detail, um, well, as much as he was able to, on uh, the fact that he felt Boeing was making or that he knew, he said, making black triangles that were working off of, as he said, uh, reverse-engineered alien tech. And uh, actually what he was saying is that um, they hadn't quite mastered the technology and they were having problems with it. He retired uh, about 15 years ago, so all he knows is up to around the year 2000, 2001 or so. But... Um, I personally believe this is a, an important part of the reality that we're dealing with. Not sure I think it's the entire reality. Some people who do think it is the entire reality would see this as a psychological operation on us to make us think that there are aliens. A lot of these folks are proponents of the Project Blue Beam, the fake alien invasion. Uh, a lot of the folks who promote Project Blue Beam, I, I sense they don't really believe in extraterrestrials. They think the whole phenomenon is something like this, and that the New World Order is going to give you a fake alien invasion, scare the hell out of you, and you go running to the government for protection and enter a world of global fascism. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I actually don't think in a Project Bluebeam is going to do that, but I, I'll tell you why later tonight that I think disclosure might be such a false flag uh, designed to do that. In any case, that's a secret tech hypothesis. And then here's one of the more interesting theories that I've really been thinking about over the last couple of years, the simulation hypothesis. So I think everyone probably has seen The Matrix at this point. If you haven't, go watch it soon. It's a great movie. But so instead of you living in 
an artificial reality or a matrix. Simulation hypothesis would go a step further and say that you yourself are also an intelligent algorithm. You're a program that happens to think that you're a real person. Sounds a little crazy. I would advise you to go check it out a little bit. It's actually not quite as insane as you might think. I'm not saying that I necessarily believe it, but um, I, I can't disprove that one. Uh, I think it was Nick Bostrom who wrote about this, and I remember when I read this, he said, well, you know, here's how I see it. In, a, in the future, at some point, we'll have the ability to create complete immersive virtual reality simulations of nearly anything you can imagine. Any point in the past, if you want to go back to ancient Egypt, we'll have the ability, he said, to create a VR program and you can go back in and you'll experience ancient Egypt and you'll talk to ancient Egyptians who will be artificially intelligent simulations that think they're alive. And he said, in fact, we'll have the ability to do a near infinite number of these simulations. And then he said, and if that's the case, if we have the ability or will have the ability to do an infinite number of variations of simulated environments, who are we to think that we're the only one that's actually real? And when I read that, I thought, damn it, I really would like to disprove that. I mean, maybe that's just a silly form of argument. But the uh, reason that I think a simulation hypothesis is a little bit intriguing is because we do have in our field some accounts of truly high strangeness that make me wonder. Um, I, I'm a, in addition to writing books, I publish some books, and I published that book on the top right there, The Messengers, about one year ago by a gentleman named Mike Cleland. Has anyone bought, the, bought that book? A couple of readers of The Messengers. Um, I'm glad because I, I honestly believe it's one of the most important books in this field in the last decade. Um, Mike is an outdoorsman. He lived for many years in the state of Idaho in the western U.S. He's someone who could live for weeks and maybe months outdoors. He's a survivalist. Um, he's also a really good and honest writer. And he started having bizarre experiences with owls, real owls, not screen memories. And uh, in connection to moments in his life that he felt were particularly emotionally charged and also in connection with UFO experiences and abduction experiences that he has had and that he has described in some detail. I will say that I know Mike personally, and he's an extremely uh, stand-up guy. Um, so the takeaway from the book, The Messenger, he, and, and then he put up a blog site about a strange experience with owls and UFOs, and people started writing to him. He collected an enormous number of stories. The thing that you, I take away from The Messengers is... Uh, that there are synchronicities in our world that are really hard to explain away in terms of normal Isaac Newton causality. There's something going on here. I start calling it a meta-intelligence. In The Messengers, you really come away with the idea that there's intelligence that's tapping you on the shoulder, giving you clues that only you are able to divine because of the particular skill set that you may have. And uh, I'll give you one example. I gave him one story for the book. Uh, and I know this one quite well. I know the, the witness extremely well. And I think this will explain what I mean. This is a woman, and she's Canadian. Uh, she had a sighting of a black triangle in 2003. Wrote about it to the National UFO Reporting Center. I found out about it. I investigated, and I met her. We became very good friends. I want to 
develop a, what I feel is a fresh extraterrestrial hypothesis, not a 1950s ATH. Um, I say what I do based on officially documented cases. We have hundreds of military classified uh, encounters with aircraft, with UFOs, showing technology or surely what appears to be technology, indicating a lot of concern and secrecy and all of that stuff that uh, we've heard about for a long time. The uh, U.S. back in the 40s and 50s several times concluded these objects are not Soviet, they are not ours, they, do not, they are not natural phenomenon. So what are you left with? If they're technological, someone's flying these things, ET is always a definite possibility. Not necessarily definite, but you never know. Then there's some unusual cases. I love these. So there's a famous one from 1927 in the Himalayas. An explorer, really a genius, named Nicholas Warwick and his wife led a trek in the middle of nowhere. And they recorded a bright, bright, fast-moving object, a shiny object. There have been attempts to debunk this. I don't think any of them are, are good. I think this is a really interesting case. I found one in the Canadian National Archives from 1936. A man, many years after the fact, wrote about this. He was uh, 25 years old in 1936. Here's a cool job. His job was to fly over the northern Canadian territories where nobody lives, photographing the terrain, getting accurate uh, terrain and cartography and geology and, and so forth with aerial photography on those little aircraft that can land on the water. Not a bad job. So he was at a place he identified as Aylmer Lake. I found it on Google Earth. It's, I gasped. It's so remote. There's nothing there. Um, looked up all, all alone in a perfect blue sky, saw what he described as the most perfect configuration of an airship one could imagine, slightly elongated. It was physical, no reflection, gray, North-south configuration, and then just turned east-west like that and instantly accelerated, gone silently within a second or two. I'm guessing that wasn't secret Nazi technology, whatever that was. These are remote counters. There's a lot of remote ocean encounters over all the oceans, including the Arctic Ocean. I just published a book called uh, Russia's USOs. It's a good book. It's an interesting book. And uh, there's a lot of very bizarre encounters that the Russian Navy has had over the years in the Arctic Ocean, where there's just nobody living there. But there's objects going into it. There's objects coming out of it. You have cases of gigantic craft. Uh, the 1978 case in Chile, where uh, you have two fighter aircraft and ground-based radar, both, all three, tracking an object as large as 10 aircraft carriers. The 10 aircraft carriers. Except it wasn't floating on the water, it was up in the air. Two pilots saw it visually, they chased after it, it instantly accelerated over the um, Pacific Ocean. These are suggestive of technology to me, and uh, of a technology that likes to be in remote parts of the world. Then you have testimony of individuals with encounters with all kinds of beings. The bottom right, of course, is an Australian case, a very well-known Peter Curry. On the bottom left, you have the Brazilian Barginha case. The top from the 1994 Rura Zimbabwe case of school children. They're all adults now. I know one of them personally. These people saw a gray alien being. And a number of them are going public about it to this day. I don't know that every single case of alleged encounters with non-human looking beings is true, but there's a lot of them. And uh, they certainly appear to be non-human physical creatures. 
If they're not from another planet, I don't know where they're from. Extraterrestrial seems like it's a reasonable guess. You have evidence from many abduction researchers and counter-researchers. We know this phenomenon is widespread. We know that there are people who have had abductions, have had it done multiple times. These beings seem to be interested in our bloodlines to some extent. extent. There's a variety of them. They're described with some consistency. The greys, the reptoids, the insectoids, and so forth. Hybrids, human-looking hybrids. All of them seem to have very advanced mental capabilities. Getting inside your head doesn't seem to be a problem for them. Um, again, when I look at the abduction research, it does seem to support an extraterrestrial view. But you might ask, does it support other ideas? There are people who believe that abductions take place non-physically. Is that the case? Sometimes it might be the case. Is it all military abductions posing as extraterrestrial? I'm not sure that I believe that, but maybe there are. I think there are military abductions. So I can't prove that UFOs are extraterrestrial, but I ask you, is it really a crazy idea? I don't think so. So I'm going to give you my reasons why I think we have an extraterrestrial phenomenon and what I think we're dealing with. I will just add that uh, this is a, a maddeningly complicated subject. Um, it's possible not only that there's no single theory that explains all of these UFOs, but it's really possible that a lot of the theories may contradict each other at times, at least in certain cases. It's, it's tough. But what I believe is a fresh view of this should inc incorporate what we know in our astronomy, studies of new planets, what we know about in, in terms of our developments in energy and propulsion, our technology, automation, artificial intelligence, computing, and then also really incorporating the data of people who've had experiences. So toward that end, what I would suggest is that there are beings who came here from elsewhere. I say this because, first of all, you know, talking with those, uh, those skeptical astronomers earlier in our, um, our lecture, who said, well, it's impossible for us to go out into space. I really wonder what these guys were thinking, like as if human society would never advance beyond the level of the 1950s or beyond the level of 2016. Uh, we are at a point now, these are all open literature here. The development of space drives is here now. Uh, we talk about the singularity in terms of artificial intelligence. That is when your computer will be able to talk to you and accept that it will have a godlike level of intelligence according to AI theorists. I mean, maybe it won't happen, but maybe it will. A lot of people believe it will. Could be within 20 years. You know, we talk about uh, the Terminator coming to kill you. Maybe the Terminators will just take our jobs all away. But um, I think that whatever they are, these beings that they've achieved advanced artificial intelligence a long time ago. Genetic mastery, that's obvious. In the last five years, we've developed CRISPR technology with gene editing that is off the charts. We're going to be able, we're already now at the point of reinventing not just our civilization, but ourselves as a species. It's a frightening thought, to be honest with you. I'll come back to it in the next lecture a little bit. Because I have a feeling that, uh, you know, the generation of super intelligence and super immunity and super strength may not be for everyone except maybe for those who can afford it. That's just my fear. But I think that they may have total mastery of the, of the genome and things like organic printing, not just organic replacement of hearts and livers, but maybe organic printing of beings. 
combined with advanced nanotechnology, virtual reality creation. Uh, I think they've, they've got this. So when you combine all of these technologies, you really have to wonder. Maybe tiny little nanobots that can compile and decompile at the snap of a finger, like Star Trek's holodeck. Uh, I think that they can do that. I think they can manipulate space-time. Um, I don't pretend that I understand it, but you know, our own math now shows that we can actually, we, that something like warp drive of Star Trek is possible. There's math done over two decades ago at the University of Wales, Miguel Alcubierre, who described essentially folding space-time in, in the sense of using it as propulsion. His math is good. The only problem is we don't have enough energy to bend space to do it. But, um, you know, maybe we will. I think they've got this ability. And I said earlier that I didn't understand how we could go back through time, and I don't understand that. But if you can fold space, then you're, you are folding time, and maybe they've got a way to play games of time. I think these beings are mostly artificially created. This is my suspicion. I believe this for a very long time. Um, I don't know that they all are, but I think probably a lot of them are. Customized beings maybe to fit in to work here. You know, if you're from another planet, uh, then the microbes on this planet might not be very good for you. So you might need to do some gene splicing and manipulation to create a hybrid organism. Also, you might want to outfit them with a certain amount of advanced artificial intelligence and whatever other genetic tweaking to make them customized for your purposes. You know, let's just remind ourselves that almost every single account of gray aliens uh, shows them lacking sex organs. Which, if I were creating an android race, I wouldn't want to give them the ultimate distraction of sex organs either. I just want them to do work for me. And uh, I suspect that's what they are. I think when you go through the accounts of people who've had experiences, every... If there's an alien that's talking to you with their lips, that's a reason not to believe the story. Almost every single account that I've ever uh, come across is telepathic in one way or another. These beings are able to get into our minds. And uh, they are, what Dave Jacobs said years ago, they can exert neurological control over us. That is, if they do not want you to move a muscle, you will not move a muscle. They can levitate people through walls and so forth. I don't know how they do it, but they, they can do this. They're interested in us. They're interested in Earth. Of course they are. Earth is amazing. We have life. We have got an incredible richness of genetic diversity. That's why I think maybe they're found in remote regions of the world, because also they don't really want to be bumping into us. But Earth is very interesting to them. I think they've been here a long time. I don't know for sure, but I strongly believe it. Um, when we go back through the history of anomalies in our civilization, there's a lot of them. It's totally possible that there was a lost human civilization that was responsible for the pyramid at Giza. I don't doubt it. But I do think that we have probably been observed, observed for a long time. And um, if that is the case, we really do have to ask, have they manipulated us, modified us? Do they feel that they own us? I also like to know if they're here do they have an infrastructure? They must. How do they survive and what is it? I don't hear anyone asking about this. I think they're interested in us as uh, human beings. By the way, I really like the guy with the orange head in that picture. I feel like that's us, everyone in this room. We're the guy with the orange head. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I think they're interested in us because it's obvious. I almost laugh, but I get frustrated when I run into other researchers who, who minimize our importance. They talk about how tribal we are. We're like insects to them. I disagree. I strongly disagree. We're on a trajectory that is really amazing. We've gone for thousands of years as a civilization of basically animals pulling wooden carts, as I like to think of it. And uh, in the last 150 years, we get massively incredible technology, trains and automobiles and aircraft and rockets and nuclear weapons and computers and iPhones and iPads and nanotech and artificial intelligence, and quantum computing, 150 years. All right, we've reinvented ourselves so dramatic, we forget. We, every one of us forgets how incredibly rapid our development as a species is. But I'll bet you they haven't forgotten or lost sight of it. They're watching us, and they know we're right now we're about to leap right into their world. We're this close. We have to be. We're not going at a linear rate. We're going like this. So they're looking at us. And they have to be wondering, maybe they're wondering, these humans might be a real pain in the neck in the future. Maybe we want to manage their infrastructure. Just a thought. If I were an alien, I would absolutely want to be managing the human infrastructure to keep people sort of tame. Maybe that's why they don't want to be out in the open. I don't know why they don't want to be revealed, but they're clearly clandestine. You know, and I, I actually suspect, I don't know every single time, maybe they allow themselves to be seen, and that's why we've seen them. But I believe in a number of cases that I've looked into, uh, I think some of the sightings have been accidental, where people see them and then they're like, oh, damn, and then they disappear. They disappear. Um, I just uh, was learning of a case recently, two women watching television. This is in the, in the States, watching a UFO documentary, if that means something. And they, uh, in front of the TV, they see a being, a hooded being, for about one second. It appeared very tangibly. They were both in a state of shock. They looked at each other, and the being just disappeared. And I don't know what that was, but I suspect maybe the being accidentally didn't mean to be revealed. I don't know. They're very elusive. To continue, I, and I'm just about done here, and then we'll take a quick break. I think we're looking at different groups of extraterrestrials. Uh, for the record, Linda Moulton Howe, longtime researcher, that being on the on your far right, she included in her book um, that um, hidden. 
the Hamilton book. I, I, I have it in my hidden glimpses of other realities. Gosh, sorry, sorry. My brain's just going. And uh, that image appears there. And Linda just said uh, recently that she spoke to a defense insider who said to her, that is an exactly accurate image of one of the beings of the aliens. So that's that's according to Linda. Um, there, these types recur. You've got the uh, the blonde supermodels on the bottom there. It would be nice if they all looked like that. But uh, actually, we might have a real inferior, inferiority complex. Uh, I, I'm only half joking here. I've encountered a number of witnesses who've had encounters with what appear to be highly telepathic and rather frightening blonde uh, human-looking beings who don't really, they're not very friendly. And um, in one case, I, I spoke to a retired U.S. Army colonel, uh, excuse me, Air Force colonel, who had very, very extensive top-secret clearances, and I interviewed him and his wife, and she was very lovely. And um, they were with, uh, I'll tell this quickly, they were with a friend of theirs who they described as kind of a psychic friend. This colonel, by the way, was deeply interested in UFOs and ETs and, and had been connected to it to some extent through his career in the Air Force as well, as well as personally. But anyway, the three of them were at a Las Vegas casino having fun. And the psychic friend of theirs grabs, as they were on the second floor, she grabbed him by the upper arm and said, that woman is not a human. And she looked, and there was a beautiful blonde woman dressed absolutely to perfection in this gorgeous blue outfit. That's Las Vegas, and there are a lot of beautiful people in Las Vegas. But there was something about this woman. The psychic friend and, and this man's wife got frightened, and they went down the escalator to get away. He stood there looking at her, and he said, that's when she turned partially, and I could hear her in my mind. And what she was thinking in my mind, it was very startling to me. It was essentially, what do you think you're looking at? Nothing to see here. Just go about your business. Something like that. And he was startled. At that moment, an equally beautiful blonde man joined this woman. They were clearly together. Anyway, the blonde couple get to the bottom of the stairs. They walk off. And that's seemingly the end of the story, but it isn't. Well, the psychic friend of theirs happened to do hypno-regression. Yeah. And so the three of them were talking, and they said, well, you know, maybe you might, if we, I regress you, you'll remember better what you heard in your mind. That was the idea. And he says, that's a good idea. So he was, she lived in western, uh, eastern California, out, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And a few days later, he's at her house, and he's lying down, and she's regressing him. The problem was, every time they, he got relaxed, they heard construction noise outside her house. She lived in like a dead-end neighborhood. There was no traffic there. Jackhammers, though, helicopters, uh, construction. They would go outside to look. They found nothing. But every time he would try to be regressed, this happened, so they gave up. He said, no big deal. I'll be at your house next month, and we can do this then. She said, cool. A month goes by, and he called her. He said, I'm going to be at your house in a few days. I can be by, like, tomorrow or the day after or whatever. Uh, how about we do that regression? She said, what regression? What are you talking about? He said, last month, we were in Vegas. She had no memory of any of this, according to him. So that's a long segue, maybe a little off, off track here, but who are these beings? Were those beings, were those people human? 
Well, they sure look human. I've encountered some of these stories of blonde beings. I don't know how to explain them. I don't know if they're just homegrown people who are like part of a super psychic cadre and they're infiltrating us or if there's something else. I got another story, I, I won't go to all the details, that makes me think that, that they're part of a non-human um, infrastructure. Essentially, two blonde male and female, back in the 60s, uh, walk in their scene with a very, very tall, ultra-tall kind of men in black who look like, uh, there's an American TV show, The Addams Family. He looked like Lurch. You remember Lurch, very tall. One thing that I, uh, I, I really believe with these beings is that uh, they have an alien psychology. And I know that sounds like a truism, but let me, let me just explain what I mean. Um, we're, we're mammals. We're biological creatures. We're born. We have a mother. We, we nurse. If we're lucky, we get unconditional love from our mother and from our father, and we grow up in a family of people who touch us and kiss us and love us. That's how we're designed. And we go through our lives. Uh, I feel, seeking to recreate that feeling of unconditional love. That's what our love relationships, if we're lucky, are all about. We are designed with emotions and designed to have emotional connections to people. And I wonder about these other beings. In every single account of them that I have come across, they don't seem like they're mellow, easygoing people. <laughs> they don't tell jokes. They don't shake your hand and say, hey, how are you doing? Like everyone that I've met in Australia is actually like that. Aussies are the best. Americans are kind of similar. You guys win. Um, but, but, but that's how we are. And um, I don't think they're like that. And if they're artificially created, they're really not like that. I mean, we have enough difficulty with ourselves among human beings and societies understanding each other. I really wonder how successful we could be at understanding another species like that, or they, us. I have a feeling they find us fascinating and maybe partly because of our emotional outlook. I don't think it's like anything that they have. And it doesn't mean that we can't deal with them. I'm not saying that we can't, but I'm saying understanding might be a little bit tricky. That's what I wonder. Anyway, uh, I'm just about done here. I've run a little over, but I think we're okay. Um, I think what's going on with this phenomenon is elements of our society are trying to deal with them. I'll have more to say about this in the next lecture. I do think some of the UFOs that we see are our UFOs, and some of the abductions are our abductions, but, but then there are those that are not ours. And uh, the last thing I'll just say on this is that dealing with these other beings has caused a great distortion of our civilization. In other words, we're not, something's gone wrong. All right, they're here, and we're not dealing with this in really the best way possible. We're dealing with this in a manner of secrecy, in a manner of deception, a manner of denial, which is psychologically unhealthy for us. Because when you're, when you're dealing with a certain reality and you're, you're forced to deny it, um, that does things to your cognitive faculties, I think, and it causes cognitive dissonance to us as a civilization. It's not good. It's not a good way to deal with the challenge of these other beings, whoever they are, whatever they are. Um, I don't mean to sound uh, pessimistic when I say we may never be anything like equals to them. That doesn't bother me. I'm actually very comfortable in my own skin. I hope you are too. We're human beings. We have a lot to offer. We don't have to be as smart as these other beings. We don't have to be as uh, technologically advanced. and We don't have to have the ability to float ourselves through walls. That's not what makes us valuable. 
Um, I think for me, I would be very happy if uh, we can just get this out in the open, deal with it as intelligent adults and have an intelligent adult discussion about this phenomenon so that we can get some public recognition of this and begin the process of eliminating those distortions uh, to our civilization that have been damaged by the secrecy. So this is all about uh, the cover-up, and I'm going to blow through a few things. So the starting point, we don't need to talk about this. If you're a total skeptic, and I'm sure maybe you probably are not, uh, these are some really interesting documents that prove, they don't hint, they don't suggest, they do prove that the U.S. government, U.S. military has been taking UFOs very seriously. There's some very interesting data in these documents. These came through the U.S. Freedom of Information Act. They describe airspace violations, objects that instantly accelerate, radar trackings, jet interceptions. It's an amazing story, actually. And we, uh, as though, even though they're completely confirmed, it shocks me that our society still doesn't know that much about the uh, nature of this whole thing. There's a reality going on. In other words, it's provable. This is my take on the likely scenario, the big picture in terms of the cover-up. I'm going to go through this very quickly. There have been crash retrievals, Roswell and elsewhere. There have been military encounters. In fact, that last slide I showed you uh, described many of those military encounters. There have been many, many more. So in other words, pretend that your name is Harry Truman is back in the 1940s, and your generals have just said to you, sir, uh, not only have we recovered an alien body or bodies, and technology that doesn't come from our civilization, but they seem to be flying around and invading our sensitive airspace, and we don't really know what to do about it. So that's your situation. What would you do? Would you tell the world? I don't think you would. You might want to, and I might want to, but if you're Harry Truman surrounded by top generals and uh, scientists, they might convince you that this is a bad idea. What do you tell the you? How do you describe this without really knowing the intentions of these beings? How bad is the public panic going to be? And if you tell the world that you've recovered exotic technology, then it becomes very difficult not to share that with the rest of the world. And if this is better than atomic technology, which it was probably, and America didn't want to share its atomic technology with the world, which was a big issue at the time, then I think we can assume yeah, we'll keep the extraterrestrial stuff to ourselves. And I think that would be the attitude. And what we would do is create absolute secrecy and total control. You nail down the academic community, not that hard to do. The mainstream media, that's really easy. That goes on to this day. Back in the 50s, U.S. had something called Operation Mockingbird. Has anyone ever heard of Mockingbird? A few people. So that was basically the CIA paying off mainstream journalists to write stories, spin editorial spin, create some fake stories, they did that, um, and uh, kill stories that they didn't want killed. I, I imagine what you could do personally if you had 400 top mainstream journalists secretly working for you right now. Could you control the news totally? Maybe not. Could you influence the news? Oh, yes. You could do a lot, and that is exactly what happened. I wish we were back in the days of Mockingbird because it's far worse now. CIA uh, is much more deeply involved, and the U.S. military spends, I believe the number is $4 billion every year managing its social profile. That means not only paying off journalists and getting on to Fox News or PBS or uh, CNN, which they do all the time, but also creating trolls under the news articles that you read. They call them sock puppets. There are absolutely, literally Pentagon employees 
whose job is to create fake persona, to influence public opinion on all kinds of news stories. So when you read these really crazy people sometimes who are like really hardcore, um, pro-military, pro-whatever, some of them are, are paid employees designed to influence you. Anyway, that's how you control the media, and there's much more, but I've got to keep moving fast. In addition to managing the public, you create black agencies, black budgets. That is secret spending, secret agencies. The U.S. has a long history of agencies that have existed in secrecy. The NSA existed in secrecy for many years before it was outed in a book in the 1960s. The NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office, existed in secrecy for 30 years. It was a felony for a member of Congress to mention the NRO. Um, that monitors all spy satellites, and uh, it's out in space. NRO is a very interesting agency. It's still very deeply secret. The U.S. has a long history. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. A noble history, an ignoble history, you might say, of powerful intelligence agencies that don't exist officially. How do you pay for a lot of these, this secret ET program? If you're going to study ET tech, if you're going to create a program of secrecy to manage the extraterrestrial reality, do you just go through Congress or Parliament? Well, Congress in America's case. Well, you could get some classified money that way, but that's not really convenient. Way better to have your own stash of illegal money, drug trafficking money, securities fraud, banking fraud, and the like. This is a huge part of our world. It never gets discussed. The U.S. intelligence agency, as other agencies as well, are deep, in my view, in um, illegal money. Every now and then, stuff comes out. There was a scandal that had to do with Australia and the CIA uh, years ago, Nugent Hand Bank. And then you've got BCCI. And um, right now, I just read an article less than a year ago. I think there's a, a multi-trillion dollar hole at the center of the financial world, basically a big black, uh, black hole at the center of our finance, missing money. The U.S., the Pentagon has talked for years about missing money. Uh, many of you have heard about this, billions and even trillions of dollars that are not accounted for. Uh, well, I think some of this goes into a program. If, I mean, you know, if you're the CIA, you want to raise secret armies and assassinate leaders and manage entire media outlets and you need, you need a lot of cash, so it, it helps to have your own stash of unvouchered money. And the same applies for the UFO secret. And along those lines, I will tell you of a conversation I had with one scientist. I don't like coming up with my own secret sources to throw at you, but this is a, this is a source, and he's a good one, who uh, said to me that his understanding of the, how the secrecy worked, the money spent on security of the program was seven to eight times greater, he said, than the actual scientific research and development. It was way more expensive. So what does that mean? Underground bases, I assume. Managing media, I assume. Guys with guns, I assume. And maybe much more. Managing security is expensive. More expensive, he said, than the science. What this creates is that I call a system of runaway privatized secrecy. And so I, what I mean by privatized is very simple. Uh, there have been only a very few studies of black budget America. 
not many, um, they all come down to the same conclusion, that the system is privatized. So it's not the Defense Department that really dominates. It's Lockheed, Boeing, Raytheon, General Dynamics, General Electric, the contractors where that's where the real money is. And so they have what we call special access programs. That's a black budget program. That means a special access program doesn't exist except that it does exist. But officially it doesn't exist. And what we can see is that the dominant power in these SAPs tends to be the contractor. And it makes sense from the point of view of secrecy. Uh, let's say there's secret technology at Roswell that's been recovered, and I'm the Army, and here's a, you know, Lockheed. So they have way better research and development, and scientific personnel and technical personnel than we have in the Army. They'll, they have the ability maybe to reverse engineer or something. So they're, they're logical. General Electric, General Dynamics, same thing. So the, the technology goes to private industry. Who owns the technology at that point? Well, that's a good question. Maybe the lawyers hammer that one out in secret. And maybe when I retire from the Army, I get a nice job as a senior VP at Lockheed, making nice money and getting some ground floor investment opportunities on the uh, breakthrough tech. It's uh, very helpful to keep the secret that way because it's not just classified then. It's proprietary. It's much more impervious to public inquiry. And uh, this isn't simply with, with UFOs. I think this is the case with the entire labyrinthian, over-bloated U.S. national security, military, industrial complex. By the way, we just had our election. There was the Green Party candidate, Jill Stein, who um, was my favorite of the candidates, and she had the most spot-on description of U.S. foreign policy of any of the candidates, which was U.S. foreign policy is nothing other than a marketing tool for the defense establishment. And I think that's exactly right. They're all out to make the money. Anyway, let me keep going. So we've got this secret program, right? What are they doing? Well, one thing that they're doing is weaponizing the technologies. They're military people, after all. Uh, the UK released, I thought it was by accident. It was sort of by accident, sort of not, a uh, report known as the Condine Report. It was written in the late 1990s. And uh, this is a very important piece of documentation. It's about 400 pages. It's dry as dust, but there's gold in there. And um, one of the things that they discuss is very open about the existence of UAP, that is unexplained aerial phenomena, and they describe them very, very much as not ours. They also describe negative physiological effects that these UAP have on the human body. And they also talk about weaponizing the technology of UAP to the extent that it is possible to do. This is an interest. And uh, the Condon report, it wasn't quite released by accident, but it was released as a result of some nosy researchers who stumbled across it, and the uh, UK decided to release it. It was under the radar for several years, and then recently my uh, colleague John Burroughs uh, really did the, the heavy lifting and, and found, found the interesting uh, passages in there that we are now looking at. So they weaponize the technology, hide their breakthroughs. That makes sense. I mean, there are breakthroughs within the classified world that are money makers, whether it's lasers or fiber optics or high tensile fibers or who knows what. That's great. You know, if we're working in the black world on that and we come up with some breakthroughs, we can make a lot of money. But what if the breakthrough is so important that it's a little too important for making money? 
propulsion, anti-grav field propulsion technology or an energy breakthrough, something that goes beyond petroleum. If we have a breakthrough like that, we might actually not be permitted to release that to the rest of the world. Uh, that's, that's kind of a deal breaker for the global infrastructure that is based on petroleum and the petrodollar system. Our bosses might just well say to us, uh, good job coming up with a post-petroleum fuel system, but we'll just keep that to ourselves, keep working on it, and uh, good luck. And that's what we would do. We would maybe develop our own flying saucers, maybe. Our own ability to leave Earth's atmosphere. There are many, many leaks to this, uh, to this effect. Uh, what I have called a breakaway civilization. In a sense, you know, what is it that characterizes a civilization? Well, your science, your uh, cosmology, you know, your ideas of yourself in the world, uh, how you relate to outsiders. And in all of these ways, I think the classified world would have kind of a separate civilization. Uh, the science would allow them to explore areas that would be off limits to the rest of us, learn things that we would not necessarily learn. It would make them very different, a separate civilization with a secret space program. I do believe that that is the case. I wish I could go into it more. I don't believe all of the current secret space whistleblowers, we were talking about that here. Um, I do believe a number of the people who talked over the years about airbrushed photographs from NASA, let's say Donna Hare, who worked at Philco Ford, a contractor for NASA in the 70s, Carl Wolf, who worked in the, it was in Air Force in the 1960s, uh, very persuasively describing their experiences dealing uh, with uh, having seen images of bases on the far side of the moon, airbrush UFO photographs. They're very, very convincing people. There's a lot going on, and there's a lot of anomalies in our orbit of objects that really are not supposed to be there. There's clearly activity beyond Earth, and I happen to believe that there is probably activity even on the moon, as crazy as that sounds to some people, and maybe Mars. Um, although, again, I, I'm not persuaded by a lot of the Mars whistleblowers. I'll just leave it at that for now. I'm running out of time. I mean, I want to move on to the rest of this. What I think is going on in this black world, this breakaway civilization, is they're trying to catch up. Again, they think in terms of military and security and all of that, and they see these other beings that are vastly ahead of them, and it seems to me that their goal is to catch up. Whether they can or not, I doubt it, but that may be their goal. And having what I would call disclosure paralysis. I had a man who wrote to me a number of years ago who I believe was a genuine insider. He certainly sounded like it. And he said, I read your book after disclosure, pretty good book, but you do not appreciate how terrified we are of going to prison once there is a disclosure and why, therefore, you don't expect any of us ever to cooperate with disclosure. Because in, until we're certain that the pitchforks and torches crowd doesn't come after us and want our heads, we're just not going to cooperate. He didn't say torches and pitchforks, but that's really what he meant. And um, I thought, you know, he seems quite reasonable about that. So I think that's part of the paralysis. I think a greater paralysis is the knowledge of what would happen in the event that this secret comes out. After I finished writing after disclosure, one thing that was obvious to me was how revolutionary this subject is. If any national leader were definitively to state that this is a genuine phenomenon and prove it, that's, that turns everything upside down. Um, in the US, 
there'd be a lot of angry people wondering, how have you lied to us all these years? Uh, how, how does the structure of secrecy work? And they'd be asking a lot of other questions. So do we have secret alien tech? Maybe the rumors are true. And oh, by the way, did you lie about 9-11? And did you lie about chemtrails and underground bases? And I mean, everything just goes out of control. Uh, once that opens up, you don't know where you end. And then the energy paradigm is probably the biggest thing. If uh, per President Obama tomorrow, before he leaves office, were to say, well, it's uh, come to my attention that the UFO phenomenon is real. I'm going on a long vacation, everyone. Goodbye. You know, But, but it would take, really, um, it would take all of five minutes before people would realize, wow, these reports then are probably valid and therefore they're probably not using high octane petroleum to go from point A to point B. Whatever they're using is better than petroleum and we'll probably figure out what it is and that in implies a post-petroleum global infrastructure which is probably the biggest revolutionary thing I can imagine. And by the way, it's the reason that the U.S. has to be the dog that pees on everyone's tree is to dominate the petrodollar system and to control the oil fields and all of that. So everything goes out the window with disclosure. It is the ultimate disruptor to our world. So that is that this slide this is that's my basic scenario. Now let's move on. This I talked about, I'm gonna skip most of this. This is the scenario from the the beings point of view, like what these other alien beings are. I discussed this before, I'm gonna skip it. I think that there is an advanced infrastructure. I think I suspect they are probably not us. They are probably extraterrestrial or whatever they are. They're very, very radically advanced. I suspect they are extraterrestrial. And the bottom point there I make is they are secretive, very secretive. They are not interested, as far as I can tell, in outing themselves anytime soon. I discussed this as well. I think there are different kinds of beings that are here. Do they manage us? It's a fair question to ask. You know, I've often thought I would want to if uh, I were them. Now let me move on. So this is a little idea that I developed a little short while ago, a couple of weeks ago. Layers of reality. So we're, you know, our mass culture is in the center. It's the brightest. It's where all the attention is. Turn on your TV, watch sports, watch Dancing with the Stars, watch your, you know, dumb, dumb CNN or whatever equivalent is here in Australia for news. You know, the ridiculous dumbed down reality that we are all subjected to every single day. And we all just wish, like, Get, get away, okay? Kim Kardashian's ass is in the center of that reality. And all the other stuff that just distracts us and, you know, and causes us to get off of our game and not look at the important thing. So beyond that, then, then when you go to the university or uni, uh, as you say down here, I think, um, we call the academic reality, or I call it. And that's when you realize, oh, wow, I can be, I can read Noam Chomsky, or I can read something else that's really smart, and I can realize how stupid TV is. And, you know, when you're in the academic world, I spend a lot of time there, you get the idea that, oh, well, this is the, this is the full version of reality. Yes, yeah, much better than what those silly people who watch Fox News are all about. Uh, and it's, you know, that's, that's a very comprehensive vision of reality there. Um, even when I was back in, in uh, my academic life, which now seems so long ago, I remember when I was studying the history of the CIA back then, which I was, um, it was very hard. And what I realized is that there was not a lot of data on the CIA. 
Uh, and of course, for obvious reasons, it's an intelligence agency. If they're doing a good job, you're not going to know about what they do. And that's the nature of the next rung, classified reality. And you notice each one of those gets a little darker because there's less light, there's less information. Classified world is uh, typically off limits to the academic world until things become declassified. You know, I'm from the field of history. Historians are notorious. We, we love to have documents. We like to go into archives. Everything's out in the open. And there's a predisposition among historians, I believe, I believe this forever, that they, they kind of forget. You know, they sort of discount the classified world because they don't have access to it. And so we're used to piecing history together based on declassified literature. But what if something so important like, oh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, that some stuff never gets declassified or destroyed? Well, then you have these dumb, dumb historians who act like Lee Harvey Oswald shot Kennedy all by himself, which is not the case. But anyway, that's the classified reality. But even within the classified world, then there's only, I think, a small segment of the classified world that deals with our subject here, the UFO subject. I call that the breakaway reality. And they know they have a little more expansive and they're a little darker. And then beyond them, though, because I think even they have limits to what they know is the reality of these other beings, these ETs. So these are the levels of, uh, of reality. I kind of like that little graphic. So let me move on to disclosure. So we're in a complex reality with a lot of layers of reality that we're dealing with. So let's just pretend that our job is to end the UFO secrecy. So if you, how do you do that? Well, in the United States history, going back to the 1950s, there were always efforts. Every single decade of the second half of the 20th century had its own effort to end UFO secrecy. We're not, this is not a new thing. And every decade had its own little crescendo, its own little crisis, and, and then it didn't happen. It didn't mean that we were back at square one, but it did mean that it didn't happen. Now, back in the 1950s, there was a group called NICAP. Many of you are familiar with it. They were based out of Washington. And they, were, they, they didn't use the word disclosure, but they were really pushing for that. And NICAP's attitude was, we're going to have congressional hearings. Um, because it made sense. Back then, Americans, probably Australians too, Americans believed in their system. We really thought we had a representative system. We told ourselves this all the time. We would elect members of Congress. They were our representative and they were responsible to us, and that was our government. And within that belief system, that made perfect sense. Now, the attempts to end UFO secrecy back then failed miserably. And you looking, looking back, you can see why they failed, because we didn't really have a representative system. We had an oligarchy then as well. We just didn't realize it. Now we realize it. And now it's actually worse for so many reasons. So if you have an authoritarian or oligarchic system, you know, it, it's, it's one thing to achieve disclosure through a representative system that actually functions. But if that system doesn't function, and if, in fact, it is an authoritarian or even neo-fascist system, which I do believe arguably we're moving toward, well, then how do you get disclosure in that kind of a system? Well, I'll just leave you with that thought for the moment. I'll come back to it. So on an international basis, how does the secrecy work? How does it work? The U.S., you know, I started... My research, I'm an American, uh, I very naturally gravitated, looked at the U.S. side of the secrecy. And it made sense. The U.S. is the dominant power in this world, and it does seem to be the heart of the secrecy. 
but it's not the only country in the world. There's 200 or so sovereign nations in theory. Why is it? People always wonder this. Why is it that other nations haven't jumped ahead of the United States and given this secret up? Be kind of a cool thing to do, wouldn't it? Let's find out why. I think there are definite reasons why this is not the case. Um, when you look at the actual structure of power on this planet, it doesn't work with little sovereign independent nations working through the UN. I think we can all understand that. So we have instead a financial and political, but mainly financial elite that goes beyond national borders. And they work through the most powerful tool for their use on this planet, that is the United States government and the United States military, which is a very awesome tool for their enrichment. They control that government and they control that military and they control the foreign policy of that government. That means they control, you know, invade this country so we can steal their oil and expropriate $30 trillion worth of oil under the ground of Iraq or invade that country called Afghanistan and steal their trillion dollars worth of minerals or destroy that little nation called Syria because they won't let a Saudi Arabian pipeline go through to undercut Russian power or destroy that nation called Libya because they've got, they're going to roll out a gold-based currency and uh, severely threaten Western economic and financial interests. So they work through the U.S. This is what I believe, and this is what I think the evidence really looks at. So you work through the U.S. and its various agencies, and then those agencies have partnerships, let's use that word, with other countries, including Australia, which has a very um, elevated place in the, in the scheme of things. Australia is part of the so-called Five Eyes, which I'm sure some of you have heard of. That's the NSA and NSA equivalents of U.S., Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. I'm guessing there are other countries involved in this now. And what they do, in case you didn't know, this was found out years ago by a New Zealand journalist. Since it's technically illegal for the American NSA to spy on American citizens, although we know they do it now, but it's technically illegal. So Britain's GCHQ will spy on us on the Americans, and share that with the NSA. They'll trade information with each other. That's just one thing that they do. I mean, so what I'm saying to you here is that you have a global financial elite that works through the United States and its agencies through partnerships with other key nations. And that's the basic structure. But why would nations remain silent? Well, most nations are under U.S. domination. The vast majority of countries in this world are... are almost completely dominated by the United States. Um, their intelligence communities are integrated into the U.S. And uh, often there's financial arrangements. And the only nation, the only significant nations that are not are Russia, China, Iran, Syria, North Korea. The few holdouts, not many. Um, by the way, the U.S. and its allies control, uh, I did this, this numbers for 2014, it's the latest I could have. U.S. and its allies account for about 85% of global military spending. Russia and China combined account for um, 11%, and then a few other nations are in there as well. It's the U.S. game, and they run the show. I'll come back to Russia and China in a minute. The countries that are under U.S. domination, you've got briberies, the great undiscussed reality of our world. All these national leaders are bribed. And if they're not bribed, then they're blackmailed and threatened. Uh, we, uh, 
NSA whistleblower William Binney, probably one of the greatest whistleblowers in American history. I consider him a real hero. He has said, um, if you get to a certain place in American politics, certain level of power, you will have a sit down with one of the three letter agencies, NSA, FBI, and they will let you know every little thing you've done in your life you should not have done. They'll let you know that they control you and they will destroy you if you get out of line. I really wonder what's happening right now with Donald Trump and what sit downs he's having. In the case of Trump, he's the one guy like, he's such a narcissist. Like, this is a guy like no public shaming has worked on him. He actually, I'm, I'm sort of serious. He's actually might, he might be the one guy impervious to a CIA threat. I don't know. I don't. He's just disruptive enough. Um, I'll come, I'm going to come back to Trump in a minute. But what really does happen around the world, I believe, is the blackmail threats. And if, and if you, none of that works, they'll just regime change you. You know, they just did it earlier this year to Dilma Rousseff in Brazil, if you followed any of that. Um, so that's a good way to keep people silent. And the surveillance, by the way, I men mentioned Dilma Rousseff. I'll mention Angela Merkel as well of Germany. Uh, Edward Snowden's leaks recently have just told us that NSA... Um, monitors the cell phone of Dilma Rousseff and Angela Merkel. So if, let's say you're, you were Dilma and you wanted to out the UFO secret last year. You, you know, you'd like, screw the U.S. We, can, we have information on this, and Brazil does have information on this. So well, how, would you, how would you plan your disclosure? NSA knows every single thing you're saying. You have no secrecy. NSA's got all of your ministers' emails and cell phones as well. They GPS you 24-7. You have a really difficult time to do this without being known, without, like, if you wanted to surprise the U.S., good luck, not going to happen. And this is, this is the case with really effectively, I think, every national leader. Um, most nations, I think, um, my fourth bullet point, lack the specific knowledge. And what I mean by that is, I mentioned military spending earlier. The U.S. and its allies spend 85% of military well, the top 10 nations in the world of, in all for like military spending, there's 200 nations, remember. The top 10, I think, account for close to 80% of the global military spending or, or close to that amount. In other words, it's top heavy. <clears throat> what I'm saying is that there's only a handful, a large handful of nations that have a substantial intelligence community, that have a substantial military, that they would probably have the knowledge about this subject where they would feel comfortable to do a disclosure. So there really aren't that many candidates when you get right down to it. And most of them are under U.S. domination. I think the last reason nations remain silent is just fear. There's a lot of things to be afraid of, not just the big bad America, which that is something to be afraid of if you want to jump the gun, but there's a fear of, of social disruption. This can happen anywhere. It's a great unknown. And uh, I don't know too many politicians that would be willing to just jump into those deep waters. Having said that, what about Russia and China? They're big places, they're powerful, they're outside of direct U.S. control. They're not part of the system. The U.S. is in an undeclared war against both of these countries. Don't make any mistake about it. And it's a propaganda war. And uh, whatever you think about Trump, Hillary Clinton was going just recently into absolute obscene hysterics over Russia. I mean, absolutely terrifying the hell out of me. The neo-McCarthyism in my country was absolutely through the roof. 
And she was really looking like she wanted to almost have a war with Russia. And uh, that's really what it sounded like to me. It's it, unbelievable. Unbelievable. In my entire lifetime in the United States, the anti-Russian hysteria had never been as great as it's been. Um, but what about Russia and China? Let's, let's talk a little about them. So Russia first. <clears throat> I, I personally know a bit more about the Russian situation. So, uh, but uh, they have, you know, ever as, as much as the U.S. has or any other countries has, Russia has a long history of confirmed, sometimes startlingly dramatic UFO encounters and crash retrievals. Um, and they also also have a history of very interesting statements from a number of senior officials. On the far left is Dmitry Medvedev, who currently is the number two man in Russia now, next to Vladimir Putin. Uh, that's a picture of Medvedev in Davos in 2012, talking to a journalist. Probably some of you remember the story, in which he said, when you become president of Russia, which he was at one point, he said, you're given two briefcases. One has all the atomic nuclear codes. The other has information on the aliens living in our country. And he did not mean illegals. Um, and the agencies that monitor them. And he said this with a completely straight face. The journalist he was talking to was uh, giving nervous laughter. If you watch it. But he was not. You know. Oh, then he went on. And he said more information you can find from the, from the it was translated as the, from the movie Men in Black. To which all Western journalists then said, ha, 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 big joke. Well, there's a Russian documentary, a serious one, called Men in Black. Now, I don't know Medvedev personally. I'd love to ask him. But I, um, I don't rule out that he was actually being dead serious here. We're not robots. We're human beings. Sometimes you get tired. Sometimes things just come out. I don't know why he said what he did. But I think that he seemed quite serious. Pavel Popovich, the famous cosmonaut, spoke many times about the reality of UFOs in space. And those two gentlemen on the right, Maltsev, Igor Maltsev and Ivan Chudyak, were both leading defense officials in the late Soviet Union period, 19, late 80s, early 90s. Many, many uh, explicit statements about the reality of this phenomenon. So they've, they've, Russians have talked about this. Now that was back then when the Cold War was ending and the Soviet Union was breaking apart. There was a certain moment in Russian history where this stuff was coming out. That moment has basically seems to have passed. But the point is Russia has their own UFO-related infrastructure. China probably does. I know less about China. This is Dr. Sun Shi Li. Uh, he was at the citizen hearing on disclosure with me a couple of years ago. I met him. This is an and he gave an interview with the uh, US website Open Minds. You can find it. He talked a bit about the Chinese situation. There's a, a poss possible crash retrieval of a UFO in China back in 51. Some major incidents that have happened. He uh, basically has indicated that the Chinese military is interested. They don't know if UFOs are a threat, but there's definitely a Chinese UFO military infrastructure. So what about China and Russia? I look at the two leaders, uh, Putin and Xi Jinping. These are two fundamentally conservative, cautious leaders. Whatever you hear in the Western media about Putin, I think, is basically a lie. Putin is, is uh, the adult in a room full of spoiled kids internationally. And he's a cautious international leader. He's careful. He's not rash. Uh, same with Xi Jinping. He's a very 
these are not ideological people who would jump into the deep waters without very careful consideration of anything that they do. Another thing to keep in mind about both of these countries is that oil and gas are very important, particularly for Russian exports. They rely on this a lot. And again, when I think of disclosure, I think of a real threat to the petroleum infrastructure. If not immediately, then maybe soon down the road. Um, if they were to disclose UFO reality, they would have as much on their hands almost as the Americans would. It would be, it would be a huge distraction if nothing else. And you never really know. In China, they've got the Falun Gong. My God, can you imagine how the Chinese leadership would deal if they released the reality of UFOs? Falun Gong are a cult that they've been, I say cult, they're a group. The Chinese have been trying to persecute them, have been persecuting them. Falun Gong have very strong UFO-related beliefs. That's just one nightmare of many that would come up in the event of disclosure in China. Russia would have their own issues. Now, I wonder if, if you know, in this undeclared war against Russia, particularly that the U.S. has had, or at least has had up until now, things might be different with Trump, but if, uh, if Putin's pushed to the wall, could a UFO secret come out and, as some kind of political maneuver? Maybe. I suspect, uh, oh, and then I ask, to what extent are they even independent players? And I guess what I mean is, uh, how much, how much leeway of action do these countries really have in the, the grand scheme of things? I don't know. My, my feeling is, and this is just my own sense, uh, anything's possible, but I think it's unlikely that Russia or China would, uh, at this point be jumping ahead of the U.S. in any kind of disclosure. Let's move on now, and uh, I'm going to leave the UFOs topic for about five minutes and talk about talk around the UFO subject. Uh, this is my personal take on what's going on in the world today. I think I'm right, and uh, I don't really have time to argue why. What's going on in the world today is you've got this many people who are seeking to own every single thing worth owning in this world. All the water, all the genetically modified foods that they want to make you eat forever, all the, all the minerals in the ground, every single thing, they want it and they're going to get it unless we stop them. And they're working toward it right now. They're doing it through a process we call globalization, through the creation of transnational trade agreements, TTIP, TPP, CETA, TISA, and all these others. In the United States, I've seen the disemboweling of the middle class over the past generation or more. This is part of the... This is part of the Trump phenomenon, by the way, of course, as I'm sure many of you realize. Uh, this is you know, a group that's really been um, dismissed in American politics for about 30 years. That is the shrinking middle class of working people who are really tired of kind of being left out. And here's a guy who seems like he's speaking to them. But this is what we're seeing, the end of the middle class. We're seeing a goal of financial control over the people. By the way, you don't have to break into a Bilderberg meeting to find out what the elite want. Go to Aspen, Colorado, during the so-called Aspen Institute. It's basically an open Bilderberg meeting. You can just go there and listen to these people speak in slightly more politically correct terms about why they want you and your grandchildren to be their serfs for all time, forever. They make it sound great. So that's at least you got that going for you. Um, so what they want to do is uh, create a new global political paradigm, and they're doing it. That's what these trade agreements are about and, and on and on. Now, here's another interesting thing to ask. 
do they have long-standing esoteric knowledge? I talked uh, in the last lecture about Manly P. Hall. I think that they do. I think that there is a core of people at the very top of our little food chain who do have esoteric knowledge and do have access to secret breakaway technology and do know about the ET phenomenon that is here. What is their relation to these other beings? This I don't know. We can speculate. Is David Icke correct that there are shape-shifting reptilians that basically run it, or are we simply their vassals? You know, are these human elites just the vassals of the non-humans? I, I don't know. Is it like a Hollywood movie in which they're secretly trying to fight a war to free the human race? Somehow doubt that, but I don't have every single answer. But I think there's something going on there. Something's happening there. Now, um, what... I'm going to come back to the UFO subject in just a moment. What is driving our future and what's driving this globalization? All within 20 years, we're going to see dramatic changes in every single thing that I've got here and on the next slide. So in terms of hardware, there's Moore's Law, which of course talks about the doubling. Originally, it was about the doubling of transistors on an integrated circuit every 18 to 24 months. Now it's just the doubling of computer power every 24 months, and it's holding. Maybe it won't hold forever, but it's holding. You know, if you had a computer in 1990, you know what I'm talking about. Um, we're moving toward extremely advanced hardware. Artificial intelligence is basically coming. Quantum computing is coming. Advanced nanotech, robotics, 3D printing, 3D scanning, DNA mapping and gene editing, CRISPR technology basically, brain mapping. This is all happening now, and it doesn't take too much imagination to wonder where we're going to be with this in 20 years. Continuing, everything that I'm mentioning here is already going on now. Implants for greater abilities, you see this in the militaries. Population profiling, basically minority report. You know, if they can predictively profile you, and, and this, is, this is now actually happening. Um, you know, when you turn on your Gmail, the ads basically correspond to your, your searches in Gmail, right? Um, just keep in mind that all of that information is going somewhere. And it's not going to you, and it's not going to me. There are groups that have access to all of your web data, all of your consumer patterns, all the websites maybe you shouldn't have gone to. Every little thing that you do electronically is being collated and with better and better algorithms to predict your behavior. There are people who conceivably know you better than you know yourself due to your behavior and your spending and so on. And we're only moving, it's only going to get more extreme, not less. Facial and voice recognition technology is already right now very advanced. It's only going to get better. Comprehensive surveillance, insect drones, and whatever else they're going to use to surveil you. Who knows? Your TV, right? Your smart TV. There's mind-reading technologies that exist now. Um, you have to have your head hooked up to wires and electrodes, but basically there are algorithms, programs right now, that can read words that you think. I know it sounds crazy, but it's real. So when you think a word, it produces a brain wave, apparently. And <laughs> so they can create a program that can read your thoughts with, a, a they say, a 90% accuracy. Now, we often think not, all, not always in terms of words. And so there are limitations to this technology. And plus, you have to be wired. But... That's what we can do now. So where are we going to be in 10 years from this? And then finally, ultra-fast, ultra-smart, robots, machines, virtual entities, you know, on your computer. That's where we're moving in the future. And ask yourself this question. 
Will these breakthroughs be used for you and me and everyone? Or are they likely to be used for those people who can afford those breakthroughs? If you want very smart children, very healthy children, well, you can have them genetically modified, I suppose, if you can afford it. Uh, you know, there's stories now in mainstream magazines that immortality is just around the corner. I hope not. That would scare the hell out of me, to be honest. Uh, it's a nightmarish prospect, to be honest with you. I think it's the worst. But there are people who talk like this. And maybe there will be future generations that can live. If they can, if they can turn off the telomeres from degrading or prevent DNA from degrading in one way or another, maybe they can make you live for 250 years. You but not those people over there. It's a utopia if you can afford it and a nightmare for everyone else. That's the world we may be moving toward, a kind of biologically based transhumanism that doesn't excite me. It doesn't make me happy when I think about the future. With all of that in mind, let's look toward disclosure scenarios. I believe that this scenario, I got four. When I wrote after disclosure, I had one, which was, is my number two one, which I'll show you. But this is, I think, the preferred disclosure of the elites, fascist disclosure, of course, um, because that's what they're moving toward right now. So if they're ever going to disclose the UFO reality, they want to do it in this context. We're in, I call, a great race. We are all in it. We're racing our handlers, our would-be handlers, our elites, our oligarchs. Here's the race. We developed the website, uh, the, excuse me, the World Wide Web in the last 20 years, which has revolutionized our world. It allows us to turn and communicate with each other in ways that were not imaginable a generation ago. We've had social media for 10 years, Skype, the Pirate Bay, all of these ways of exchanging data and information. These are disruptive to what the elites have wanted. Never forget this. Um, we like to think the, the Illuminati have everything controlled, but they really don't. The web was, in my view, was not a foreseen development by them. The web turned everything inside out and they have been scrambling ever since to get control back over it. And they don't really have it. They are getting it, but they don't have it. Their solution to this problem is to control it, to turn it into TV, to monitor your web behavior, to, to intimidate you, to control international law like TP and TTIP so that uh, with intellectual property rights being nailed down, if you come up with a really nifty invention, oh, like said, like a free energy device, and you want to upload that to the next generation of the Pirate Bay so I can download it on my next generation 3D printer and go off the grid and say, up yours to my utility company. That would be cool, but that would be illegal in the new system because maybe I, we'd be breaking classified patents that the black budget world has. Well, I know. They want to nail down a global transnational system here. And they're, they're doing it, you know? Nice, handsome Justin Trudeau of Canada. Everyone loves him. He's bullying the EU right now. He's been able to get the uh, CETA legislation passed through. I know someone who knows him, and he's a great guy. But you know what? He's working for the he's working for the dark side right now on that issue to get that thing passed. And this is what's happening. Uh, the real problem with globalization and with the disembowelment of much of our world is people get restless, you know? The restless, few, the restless many versus the prosperous few, and that's getting worse. Well, there's a simple solution to that. You just create a police state, surveil everyone, intimidate them, 
facial recognition and scare the hell out of them. That's what happened in my country, probably here after 9-11. A big stick beating over our heads, making us duck and not, uh, not get noticed. That's our future. That's actually, that's our past. That's 1999 in Seattle. Okay. Um, by the way, this, this is a great moment in modern history, and let's, I, we should never forget it. Um, I just realized I'm walking off camera, and I'm very sorry about that. <laughs> um, I want to point out something about this. So this is at the World Trade Organization uh, convening in late uh, November, early December 1999. 40,000 or more, probably more, people in Seattle organized and shut the proceedings of that down. They actually, delegates were not able to get in. They were not able to convene. WTO did pass more perfidious, nasty, pernicious um, uh, proceedings that uh, continued the pace of globalization. Um, but this moment, these people, tear gas didn't work, pepper spray didn't work. And they really did succeed in shutting the city down. And it's, it's happening worldwide, and I'm glad you mentioned this. So the point is that when people believe they have rights, they can do things like this. Um, 18 or 19 months after that, 9-11 happened, the hammer came down in the United States, boom, uh, telling people that you really don't have rights anymore. And I, and I personally believe that one of the key motivations for 9-11 is that right there. So um, that's what we're moving toward. And what the elites do want before they do any kind of disclosure is this total control over global intellectual life so that they control all narratives. There are no competing narratives when... Oh, yes, and also rebrand UFOs. So this is Hillary earlier in 2016 on the Jimmy Kimmel Show. Many of you know this. He asks, he asks Barack Obama. He asked Bill Clinton about UFOs. Now he asks Hillary. And she did an interesting thing. She corrected his terminology. And she said, we don't call them UFOs. We call them UAP, Unexplained Aerial Phenomena, which is a phrase that's been used since 1980. And it is, it's um, a much less value-laden term. You think of UFOs, we think of gray aliens and Area 51 and whatever. Not so much with UAP. Now, it's true that John Podesta, her campaign manager, was really into UFOs. He uses the phrase. But I also believe that this is a potential rebranding of the subject. If there's ever going to be an, a disclosure, I don't believe it's going to be with the word UFO. I think it will be with the phrase UAP or something else to kind of move away from all the questions that people might ordinarily have. What they want to do, excuse me, is control this, this uh, Sprite-like drink that came right back up, is um, they want to control that narrative to the maximum extent possible. And I think this is one possible way or one possible strategy. Now, does this, uh, oh, and then I'll come back to Hillary and Podesta and Tom DeLonge and Donald Trump in a minute. After all of these things are in place, then I think, and only then, would there be a public revelation of the breakaway technology and a disclosure when we're all mind-controlled zombies, roughly, in a 24-7 fascist society uh, when there's no competition. That, I think, is the ideal, from their point of view, form of disclosure. Um, now, this is the uh, disclosure scenario number two. I call premature disclosure. It's not really as naughty as it sounds, but... Uh, you get an idea of how it might look uh, from the picture there. In other words, something unexpected happens, a crisis or a leak 
a WikiLeaks event or mass sighting that cannot be denied. These things are possible. Something that we're in a revolutionary era. We get better and better ways of monitoring the world around us. It is still absolutely possible. The thing mitigating against a mass sighting is the fact that on YouTube there's sightings everywhere, and we don't really know what to do with them. You know, we don't really know how to prove is this real or is this not. But that doesn't mean that that will go on forever. Uh, things can happen. We're in a very tumultuous era. Maybe Russia will do something. Maybe the U.S. policy in the Middle East will backfire and it'll cause an economic crisis because it could happen. And in economic crisis, political crisis, leaks come out like rats jumping a sinking ship. And that could include disclosure. Um, all kinds of crazy things could happen. I do believe there would be an attempt by the Americans, anyway, for a self-serving sliver of the truth, uh, deceptive disclosure, I guess I would say. But if once this comes out in an unexpected way, it would be a very difficult situation to contain, potentially. And there would be, there would be a great amount of potential for us actually as engaged citizens to get to the bottom of this. You know, we remember the Occupy Wall Street movement. I like to think of Occupy Area 51 or Occupy Pine Gap. These are possibilities. When an engaged and enraged public in a premature disclosure, when it comes out without preparation, things can happen. So it's just a possibility. And this is a theme of, of uh, one of my books. Then um, let's talk about insider disclosure. This is a third scenario. And as I was saying earlier, there's a long history of activists who try to end UFO secrecy. Here's some interesting people over the years. Donald Kehoe, Roscoe Hillencoder of the CIA. There's a French minister of defense from the 50s, Robert Gallet, who had some interesting things to say about UFOs back then. James McDonald, who toured Australia. Great, great American um, atmospheric physicist, all working on it. I myself was part of the citizen hearing on disclosure. There's a clean-shaven me there in the middle. Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project back in 2001. There have been a long series of attempts by citizen groups over the past couple of decades to uh, get this issue going and end UFO secrecy. Hasn't happened. Then you have this latest iteration the John Podesta, Tom DeLonge scenario. John Podesta was Hillary's campaign manager, Bill Clinton's chief of staff back in the day. Tom DeLonge, the star of Blink-182. I met Tom a couple of years ago, and I really liked him. Tom DeLonge got into UFOs and cultivated a number of high-level generals, and, uh, and one man was the head of Lockheed Skunk Works. Very important people who were telling him about the reality of UFOs, the reality of alien tech Roswell Tech going to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And he arranged meetings of these people with John Podesta earlier this year. This all happened. Now, John Podesta did not give any indication that I could see in these documents of a committed position. But he obviously was open to it. There's some of the emails, WikiLeaks got these out, where Delange is writing back to Podesta saying, so, any news yet? What's going on? In other words, clearly, Podesta said something like, interesting, I'll get back to you. I don't know what's happened. There are always machinations on the inside, and this is high-level stuff, obviously, because of that lady. There was a lot of discussion. Would Hillary Clinton have disclosed the truth about UFOs? Um, I just wrote a piece on this yesterday. It's on my website. You can go to richarddolanpress.com. 
I also put it on my Facebook page if you follow me there. I, do, I personally do not believe that these people would have disclosed. I never believed it. I debated this uh, politely with my friends Grant Cameron and Stephen Bassett, who did and, and may still may still believe it. I don't know. Um, I look at the power structure behind Hillary Clinton and Podesta. These are seasoned political operators. I have personally not been able to see any motivation for them to do this. I see nothing to gain. This is too disruptive in my view, and I've just never been persuaded that this is a real thing. All this talk about UFOs, my take on it is that it's a vote-getter. 2016 is not 1996. We're in an era now where the UFO subject is not knee-jerk ridiculed. And there is a vote out there. And I think it is quite possible to consider that the matter is that simple. But that's a good thing for us, because that indicates that there's great cultural change going on. And I'll come back to that in a second. And then this guy. This is Donald Trump just the other night. Um, I don't see Trump as a disclosure president, so let me just put that right out there. But I do see Trump as a disruptor. I could be wrong. He could be just as corralled by the neocons and Wall Street as Hillary Clinton is. Absolutely, she is. Trump can be. But Trump, I have this has to be said, as a candidate, was so opposed to the neoliberal, neoconservative, two pillars of the American ruling elite strategy, that is, transnational globalist domination combined with transnational empire, neoliberal, neoconservative. That's America's policy. And that was identified perfectly by Hillary Clinton and not so perfectly by Donald Trump. Trump is he's a little all over the map here, but this is a guy who wanted a rapprochement with Russia and was not interested in funding the head-chopping jihadists that uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama's administrations did that are now in Syria, still wreaking havoc on that country and in Iraq. And yes, the U.S. does covertly fund them. And uh, Trump does not give an indication that this is what he's about. He's a disruptor to the process. And my take on him is this is why he had to be vilified for the last year and more. Sexist, narcissist, racist. All of those may be true, but that's not why they went after him. They went after him because he's a threat to the system. And he's now in the White House, to my shock. And by the way, well, he's not there yet, but right, he's the elect. Um, it's interesting, and there's a lot more that has to play out here, but uh, the fact is he's been demonized, and he's not, he's, not a, you know, he's not a guy that I would necessarily want to hang out with. He is definitely a narcissist. But he's been, he's been demonized so that he's considered the next Hitler, which I think is not true. But this is why young people throughout the United States right now are rioting and creating acts of vandalism. and like. Um, so it's really polarized. This media campaign is very much along the lines of what happened to poor Dilma Rousseff in Brazil earlier this year when she got illegally impeached and taken out. She was demonized. And she's a nice person. And she did nothing illegal, by the way. Trump, you know, he's not as nice. He got demonized. All indirect reasons. Not, not, none of this stuff is up front. Anyway, as far as with disclosure, um, I don't really know about him. He's kind of a wild card. He's never made a statement on UFOs that I know of. Um, it's very possible that he'll just get roped into the same system and become a, a willing puppet to the financial elite. Totally can happen. 
his initial cabinet choices, from what I'm seeing, don't look too impressive to me. They don't look too inspiring. So maybe he'll just be more of the same. But he's also a little bit unpredictable. And uh, whereas I would never have expected a Hillary Clinton disclosure, although some people apparently did, I would actually be more likely to expect some crazy-ass thing coming out of Donald Trump uh, than Hillary Clinton. But, you know, you prob you're probably better off uh, getting a lottery ticket, and your odds are probably better. So I don't expect an insider disclosure. The one that I believe in is this one. I think this is really where to set. It's us. It's everyone in this room and everyone outside of this room. I believe that, uh, you know, when I participated in the, cult the citizen hearings three years ago, that that this is what it's about, cultural transformation. Uh, there were people three years ago when I was uh, doing the citizen hearings. I'm not going to mention them. They were really fools. And they said, you dum-dums think you're going to get Barack Obama to disclose. And I can tell you that was never, ever in my thought. And I don't think it was in the thoughts of anyone who participated in this. No one's that dumb to think that we're going to get, oh, Obama's going to listen. He's going to disclose UFOs. No. What we did is we, I, I went in consciously thinking this is a piece of cultural heritage that we're leaving. You have articulate, well-dressed people speaking to retired members of the U.S. Congress about the UFO reality. And that is now on YouTube forever. Millions of people have, are watching what we did in those five days in Washington, D.C. And I'm not saying what we did was all that earth shattering, but it was a very interesting thing that we did, and I'm proud to have been part of it. And that's just one element of cultural transformation. In my daily life and in your daily life, we are all able to do this, mainly by being brave and by being articulate spokespeople for this subject. And I believe it's essential for us to drive this process for several reasons. The world we are moving into is a neo-fascist kind of global situation, and it creates a feeling of helplessness. It's easy to feel helpless. And... And for me, the thing that's valuable in this process of people-driven disclosure is to regain our power and reject that helplessness by being our own agents. Uh, we can do this by supporting groups that do good UFO work, like this group, which has been going since 1956, and other serious UFO research groups that are out there by... Um, by supporting groups that publish information, whether it's about UFOs or anything else, like WikiLeaks and, and the like. Um, I write here, opt out when feasible. And all I mean is opt out of that system when feasible. I'm not saying you have to go off and live in the woods, go off the grid, do what you want, but, but you can. For my part, I homeschooled my kids, and I'm proud of that. I, I didn't raise two little drones. You're right there, good. It's a cool thing. My, my daughter got a little mouthy for a while. I wasn't too happy about that. But she's an independent thinker, and I'm proud of her. My son, too. Thank, well, thank you. Yeah. And that was very nice. But, but there's all different things that we can do to create independent thinkers. And this is, this is not just high in the sky, pie in the sky, feel-good stuff. It really does matter. Um, I was having a great conversation with Cheryl and Barry earlier today, and we were talking about cultural creatives. And that's probably what all of us here are, where the, where the people who are outside of the, the little reality box that we were put into, we break out. 
And um, that's kind of our job. And our job is to go out into the rest of the world and inspire other people. I often think about uh, how cultural transformation changed uh, one important thing in my country, gay marriage. You know, 100 years ago, Oscar Wilde rotted away in a British jail because of his so-called abomination. And it took a century of brave people to come out and just say, this is what I am. One generation ago in the United States, opinions on gay marriage were inverted from what they are today. Somehow something changed, a sea change occurred. I didn't expect it, I don't think anyone did. We're doing something similar with this subject right here. Um, a sea change can happen rapidly. We're in a rapidly changing society and culture all around us is changing dramatically. And it changes because of individuals making the decision to make the change. So the most important thing I think we can do is be active, be brave, be smart in this process. No matter, no matter what, thank you, we're, I'm almost done. No matter what disclosure situation we're dealing with is gonna be messy. I think what will happen to politics in the Middle East or in the US or anywhere else, truth movements evolving, and, and a long time to resolve issues because frankly, disclosure probably won't happen with a gray alien at the podium that you can ask questions to. So there'll be arguments, there'll be debates that will continue maybe for generations. The culture wars might get worse, not better. But hey, you know, no one said disclosure was gonna be fun or easy. It's just the truth. It's just a fight for the truth. And that's really what this is about. It's not about having a good time and creating utopia. That would be nice. I'm not much of a utopian. I am an idealist and I believe in certain ideals, the first and foremost of them being truth. Uh, ultimately, we have to come to grips with whoever these beings are. I don't know that we'll ever be ready. But again, I don't really know if it matters. Um, oh yeah, right here. Hopefully these others do not support the current Earth status quo. In other words, I don't really know do they have an opinion on our power structure or not. Some people are convinced that these other beings speak to them and they want us to move on to the next level of consciousness, the next density, whatever this is. But I don't really know that these other beings have a problem one way or another with our power structure. They certainly haven't done anything to change it for the better that I can see. We're in a pretty bad way. Um, I often joke, you know, we're never going to be ready to deal with them, but that won't stop us from, hap from dealing with them. Uh, no one's ever ready for great change when it happens, but it happens anyway. Who is ready for their first child? No one. And you have it anyway. Um, that's life. So just because you're not ready for disclosure doesn't mean it won't happen. I think it will happen. This is my final slide, I believe. Um, I should really not be such a downer. I'm looking at the list, what I wrote here. Uh, I don't really know that we're outmatched. In a sense, we're outmatched up by the UFO phenomenon in the sense that we're dealing with a very advanced intelligence that operates beyond our normal level, and we are really not sufficiently organized to deal with that. We don't really have data worldwide. We don't know how many sightings are going on in most parts of the world. We don't really have a lot of communication amongst ourselves, even researchers, to share information to really move forward on this. We're moving ahead by little drips and drabs. We are starting to deal with it. And then there's all these people who have these incredible experiences that, that sometimes traumatize them and they speak to no one because of the ridicule factor. 
So we're, we're atomizing ourselves and we hurt ourselves. This is what I mean when I say we're outmatched. There's a lot of things we can do to make that better. It all starts with bravery and intelligence. There's nothing stopping us from that. Um, I, I would argue that for me, a disclosure or an end to secrecy is less about learning the scientific truth about who they are and more about reclaiming our power. I'm very really interested in fascist disclosure. If that happens, I'd rather just live with the aliens. I have no interest in living in a totalitarian society that discloses this for me. I'm out. I have no desire for that. But I am interested in a disclosure that allows us to regain our own dignity as free human beings. That's what I believe in. I'm sure we all do. So it's about that, and it's about learning what the truth is. That's what it all is. I mean, will we ever really learn the full truth? There was a UFO skeptic, Philip Class, I mentioned him earlier, who had what he called a UFO curse on all of us believers. He said, the curse is this. When you die, you will have no more, you'll be no closer to the truth than you are now. Now, he got it wrong on two levels. Because A, we actually, as a society, have been learning more and more about this phenomenon. We're not just spinning our wheels. But he really missed the larger picture. The larger picture is, it is, this is not being idealistic, this is true. It is the journey toward understanding that truth is the value. And all of us know this. By throwing ourselves into this unbelievable mystery and this incredibly politically important subject, we have all made ourselves into better people than we were. And that's really what this is about. By continuing this effort, we make ourselves better, we make those of us around us better by inspiring them. And that is my lecture. Thank you very much.